Hello, and welcome to Regrets I've Had a Few. I'm Paul Hunter, Artistic Director of Told by an Idiot, and this is a podcast where I talk to friends and colleagues delving into what made them the person they are today. Hello, and welcome. My guest this month is an actor and writer who has performed at the National Theatre, the Kiln and London's West End. His debut play, Ballroom Techno Makeout Jams, was winner of the prestigious Breadwood Prize and was critically described as utter exhilarating joy. He's also a fellow Aston Villa fan, which is also a joy. And obviously, and that we'll be touching on that shortly. Uh, please welcome Nathan Queeley Dennis. Hello, thank you for having me. <laughs> Not at all. It's lovely to see you, Nathan. I, I have to begin by saying when we first, we obviously we don't know each other terribly well, but my first conversation with you is when you were on the stage door at the Unicorn. And yeah. I think I was leaving on a Friday evening and I must have said to you, oh, what are you doing? Or you asked me what I was doing the weekend. And you mentioned football. And I said, who's your team? And to my utter surprise and delight, you said it was the same as my team, Aston Villa. <laughs> which, you know, being in London, you don't always get. I thought you were going to say Arsenal or Spurs. Or... Yeah. So, the, so the, I feel we bonded obviously immediately so i will obviously i make no apology for this but there'll be many villa references or questions throughout the following but i'm glad i'm glad no one ever asks me enough questions about aston villa well so. i've got a few lined up now i can guarantee um, <laughs> especially following uh, the show we made a couple of years ago to celebrate villa's european cup victory so i'm sure that might pop up anyway it's lovely to see you um I'm, I'll do what I usually do, which is take guests back to the beginning. So you're a fellow Brummie, brilliantly. Whereabouts in Birmingham? I'm from, um, I grew up in Erdington. Ah, where my father was born. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cool. nice. Yeah. And, uh, and are you, all your family still there? Yeah, everyone is um, still Birmingham based. I have some family in other parts of the country, but mainly, mainly Birmingham between Erdington, Handsworth and Small Heath. Ah, and so you're the one that came away to London? Um, yeah, 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 just about. I mean, I was, um, it was mainly for drama school. I went to drama school in Essex. I went to East 15 acting school. And then after that, I kind of like, I worked abroad for a bit. I worked for Vienna's English Theatre in Austria. And then I came back and then I was between London if I had a job and then Birmingham where I'd stay. And there kind of came a point where I ended up moving to London, but then COVID hit. And then after COVID kind of like started to, the restrictions started to loosen a bit. I kind of was at a point of, do I stay in Birmingham again or do I just make the move? And then I eventually kind of made the move, but I'm still not coming to terms with the fact that I live in London. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know many Brummies who are like that, but we'll come to that. Let's, let's go back right to the beginning in a sense. And I, I often start with this question, but can you remember what your first experience of theatre was? Was that at school or, or the family trip? Or... Um, my first experience of theatre would definitely be there's quite a, there's quite a few I'm, I'm not sure which came first um i remember at primary school for example there was a lot of like performances and i think we were in reception and i remember everyone got given the angels but then i got given them um, like the donkey and the donkey actually had a line the line was like <laughs> the line was like eeyore or something but like that was like pretty cool for a four-year-old um and then, but then moving on from that, um, my 
godfather's like kind of in the industry to an extent and he um always if there was a new show on in birmingham or something he'd always get tickets for it and um he'd always like get my mom and dad and they brought me to watch a show called i kind of i think it's this show but they kind of got me to watch a show called old mina's kitchen oh yes which, yes um, yeah. on and it was on at the birmingham rep and i i was definitely too young to be watching a show like that but i remember like really I think I'd maybe seen some pantomimes and things like that, but I feel like that was the first like actual play I'd seen. And I, I must've been like no older than eight. And but I do remember yeah. being like, I identify so much with this. It's set in like a, like a Caribbean food shop. And I was like, Oh my gosh, these are like the spaces that I like exist in, in my life right now. And it's the first time I was like, Oh, this is like, cool. This isn't just, I didn't know what anyone was saying. I knew they said some like bad words at times, yeah. but that was like, <laughs> The first time where I really was like, this is quite cool, actually. I re I just remember really enjoying it. It was like, felt like maybe the first adult thing I'd ever enjoyed in my life. And and it's interesting, I suppose, when especially when when we're younger. But as you say, to have an experience where you kind of see something that's like your life in some mm. way. I mean, it, not exactly, but you're seeing things where you go, oh, actually, this this it does connect to me. That's quite a big deal, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Because I think at that point, I might have seen my mum my was always really good at taking me to like the pantomime at Christmas or something. I usually go to the Hippodrome for that. But um, or like a local kind of community centre would have a smaller like kind of pantomime. But and that was always fun and stuff. And then I'd always watch you know, television. I'd always watch like The Simpsons or Power Rangers or anything like Powerpuff Girls, anything like that. But this was the first time I was like, whoa that's like I think I even remember watching one of the characters and imagining it was like my brother's a, like about 15 years older than me I remember watching being like oh that's my brother like this character oh, wow. like that do you know what I mean it's the first time I could really like see these characters as people that I recognize from my life and it really I think I found that really exciting from a young age yeah it's interesting and and do you think you're you talk about your godfather and your parents do you think they chose that place specifically to take you to or was it just a by chance it was on or I think my I think both my nans couldn't babysit. Because <laughs> <laughs> they like they only would they take me out occasionally and as I got as I got older, like I don't think they ever wanted they I don't think they ever pushed me into like the arts. I think the arts kind of like came to me in various different ways, but they never shied me away from it, which I'm really like grateful for. They never like were like, no, you can't do this, you can't do that. They they were very keen on if there was something I was good at and I enjoyed, they were like very keen on keeping me at it so I think if it was something else like they went to a lot of comedy nights they wouldn't have taken me but they're like oh he's a bit young but it's a play like if it's too bad we can take him out of the interval but I was well behaved the whole way through because ah, so we've in a way you've got your two nuns uh lack of babysitting to, to yeah. <laughs> having a good social life yeah <laughs> um and what about school? We, as you started to go through school, did you get involved in drama at school at all? Or? I, um, like, at, at primary school, there wasn't much in the way of it. And I actually remember, and I always did enjoy doing it. I did, um, I did like, the after-school kind of drama stuff at primary school, if we had it for a bit. But then it wasn't until secondary where um, there was, like, a, a youth kind of amateur drama group. And... Um, my year seven teacher was uh, part of their adult group and they were recruiting for younger. And mom, and I was just like, oh, maybe I can go. And my mom took me in for that. But even then, like, it wasn't, I just did it because I just thought it was fun. I just was like, oh, this is fun. This is 
better than like playing rugby every weekend, which I did at some times. And I was just like, <laughs> I, don't, I was like, if one more person hits me, I'm going to lose my head. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I was like, this is much nicer. And then um, we got to a point where there was a, that I, you get to like choosing your GCSEs and I didn't choose drama. And I remember my two like drama teachers from the school, like, took me away and were like are you an idiot like what are you doing why are you not <laughs> I think I wanted to be like a patent attorney or something like that because I I googled what pays the most and at the time like a patent attorney if you work for like seven or eight years by after you graduate and then after like another five or seven years you'll eventually earn like nearly 300k a year and I was like great well that's what I'll do um and they were kind of like what you do drama and then they kind of yeah they kind of made me like stop being silly and then I ended up choosing it and I just yeah really started to fall in love by the time I started doing GCSE drama and actually started to see it as something I would want to do with my life rather than just a hobby. It's interesting that moment this comes up a lot with when I chat to various different guests there's there's often a recurring theme there's often a teacher or teachers that provoke somebody and same here I had an English teacher that provoked me similar to you I had no show business in my background but a particular teacher encouraged me to think about drama and stuff and then there's a point like you just touched on then Nathan where you go when something goes from being a kind of a passion or an interest into thinking maybe I could do this yeah. was, there a, was there a particular moment or did that gradually start to go actually I want to do I, I want to try this as a as a living well I um I pretend I like I loved drama and stuff, but I still kind of just preferred my, whatever you call it at secondary school, like social life. So I still preferred like, oh, I could do after school drama club or I could like just walk home with my friends and hang out at the shops after school and just mess about and stuff, which I much preferred at that point. And there was a point where the teacher, I think I, I they were doing like a production of like Hairspray or something and I auditioned, I auditioned. And then I remember one, there was like a final audition and I remember just not going to it because I was just like, oh, apparently we're all going to walk to this park today. So I just did that instead. And then it kind of like, everything started to kind of just like get away from me a bit. I didn't really take drama seriously or didn't really care about it as much. I still just did it for the fun of it. And then we did like the next year, I think like early on, I must've been in year 10, I think we had an after school thing. And I was like, yeah, you know what? I'm going to do it. And we did like improv, improvising. And I love improvising. I don't think I'd do it as much as I'd like to nowadays but we did a kind of improvising thing and I can't remember quite what I did but I just I remember going I think that's when I first realized oh I'm quite good at improvising actually and just all the teachers were like oh you're doing such a good job and then that was also like just after I decided that I was going to do like the GCSE kind of um drama and stuff and they kind of said to me they're like I think they were like we think it's a really big year for you just like try and focus and try and keep your head screwed on and really like give it your all because we really think you like good at this and they just wanted me to get good GCSEs I'm sure they didn't be having a career in it but yeah when that happened it kind of that kind of positive reinforcement kind of made me go oh is this the thing that I might be quite good at actually just from improvising and performing and then after that I kind of just started to push myself but that moment there I kind of towards the end of year 10 after that whole year I was kind of like well, am I going to go and do, what am I going to do when I get to college? And I, yeah, I just decided to go for acting and drama. I also had a good friend of mine who's like a couple years older 
Um, she's the artistic director of Women in Theatre in Birmingham currently. Okay. And um, she's uh, and she was at Stratford upon Avon College, and she was very much like pushing for me to go for that. And she's always been like a really big kind of uh, support for me in that. I ended up going to a completely different college because a new one opened in Birmingham. That's a lot closer to me than Stratford upon Avon. But yeah, that kind of that kind of year and that kind of improv class was the time where I was like, actually, I think I'm gonna like properly try and pursue this for as long as I can. It's interesting when you Maggie, you talk about it, it, improvisation and, and obviously improvisation is, is at the heart of what we do at Told by an Idiot. I mean, we, we do sometimes do scripts, you know, some good script Shakespeare occasionally. That's a, but most of our work is made from improvisation. And I, I, I think it, it can be very empowering for people when they improvise, when they, when they come up with stuff that's from them or whatever. And it's a, it's a thing that I still see in workshops that we run. And I still experience when we do it ourselves, where you go, there's a kind of ownership to that material, mm. which, which does empower you. I, I can see why that, that felt exciting, definitely. Definitely, definitely. It's that, yeah, like you say, it's that empowering aspect, that kind of um, agency over your own creativity. It can, you can take it to where you feel comfortable, where you feel confident, where you want to provoke yourself, yourself without... Yeah, and it's just like your own, almost your own authored voice in a kind of chaotic landscape. It's so, yeah, I love it. I love it. Like I said, I don't feel like I do it enough now. But. Well, it's interesting. We'll come to your writing shortly. Uh, I mean, I might touch up, come back to the improv thing. But um, so you then presumably find out about drama schools and, and yeah. start to apply. And, and yeah. what course, you end up in East 15. What course did you do at East 15? I did acting and community theatre at East 15. Uh, okay. Yeah, so an acting course with a kind of focus on community-based theatre and making theatre accessible for like others and people that maybe don't have an access to theatre per se. And when you went there, was your dream or your ambition to solely be an actor or where did the writing start to come in? At what point did that start to? I think the writing had always been a kind of, I didn't, I didn't, I don't think I ever saw myself as a writer at that point. And I mean, I'm still trying to come to terms with that, to be honest. But <laughs> but I think um, there's this, I like we always, with that, there was a, what I liked about that course is there was a lot of devising and I loved devising. I loved creating um, the same way with like, we talk about improvising. I loved having that kind of ownership over the ideas that were made. So we had like the kind of standard East 15 acting training, but then applied it differently and we, made work we would speak to people in the community like people from like old people's homes like young people then we'd make their stories into plays either for them or with them and that whole kind of process of collaborating and creating was like probably the most exciting thing about the course for me personally and I'd say it's been there for ages even at college we kind of did a course and I actually found like an old piece of writing that I must have written when I was like 16 I found it like a couple of months ago and I read it and I was like oh my gosh this sounds like how I write now like it's really interesting and at that point I never I was just doing something for college I never considered myself like a, a writer but seeing that you kind of have I had that same kind of energy in my voice and that same kind of uniqueness in the way I like to tell stories and the fact that that was actually there when I was 16 and I can identify that now like more than 10 years later it's pretty pretty wild yeah that's that's very interesting and and again that that 
with devising that act of collaboration, I think is really interesting where uh, there's a collective imagination at play as, as something starts to take shape rather than a kind of soul uh, voice or whatever. I, I, I obviously, I, I, you know, I'm passionate about that as well. So, so you, you, uh, you come out of these 15 and then did you go straight to Vienna with the, the English touring thing? Yeah, effectively, I went to East 15. I went, I worked in America for a bit at summer camp. And then um, I had like two or three months of just kind of messing, no, not even messing about. I I got cast in the job in Vienna, like a couple of weeks after getting back from America in September. But we didn't start touring until January. So then I spent the next two months just kind of hanging out, biding my time, waiting until I had to fly out, basically. And then I was in Vienna for... Well, not yeah, I was in Austria for like six months, and well, then. And what plays were you doing? We did a play. It was a play called Robin the Hoodies. Um, it was like a Robin Hood adaptation. Um, I, I can't remember much about it in all honesty. <laughs> but, um, I remember it started off with like a song, and it was for like audiences trying to learn English, and it was really fun. It was really fun. It was. I was really glad about that. I went. I went to drama school when I was just turned eighteen, and. Yeah my biggest kind of envy was that everyone else there was a lot older than me and they were all like, yeah, and I've done this and I've done that and I've done that. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've just been in the education system for my whole life. So when I finished, I was like, I really want to be able to work in the industry, but I also want to be able to like kind of live life in the way that people think life should be lived, which is why I went to America and I was really glad to get a theatre tour in Europe for a bit. Yeah, and that's good. When I came back from Austria again, I went back out to America um, so then I was that whole year I was away for like nearly 10 months basically not wow. In the UK. wow and then obviously you know you you start getting more acting credits and whilst you whilst you're doing your performing um, I suppose my question is where did the I I am right that uh, uh, techno makeout jazz was your first play yeah it's my first full play yeah and so where did that idea of, and very beginnings of that idea start to germinate for you? Interestingly enough, after a kind of while of working abroad and doing all that kind of stuff, I was like, okay, I'm, I want to work in the industry as best as I can. And I found myself working in the same pub I'd kind of worked in since I was 16. And I was like, how can I, I'm always like quite proactive in the way I like manage my career or I try to be anyway so I was like how can I get to a place where I'm working in the places I want to be working in with the kind of directors and actors I want to work alongside and I was just like I was like you just need to put yourself out there but it's one thing to put yourself out there by emailing it's another thing to kind of perform so I saw there was um the monologue slam so I initially applied for the monologue slam and then when I was looking for a monologue, I couldn't find anything that great that I thought would be a good show of kind of my talents and abilities. So my friend, again, who I mentioned earlier, she said she did it the year before and she wrote her own kind of monologue. And she was like, you should just write your own. And I went, yeah, actually, I do enjoy writing because I can write a three minute monologue like that's so that sounds so reasonable. And that's like fun. So I just went about doing it. And then after that, um, I end up making it to the national final for the monologue. Wow. With wow. The monologue. And the, the fun thing about that monologue is I've still got a clip of it somewhere on some form of hard drive. But um, the kind of three minute monologue I did in that first monologue slam is basically the first kind of two or three pages of boring techno makeup jams as it is today. Uh, 
that's fantastic. So the, the the real essence of that play starts with you writing that model. That's really interesting. And and when you it, does it change much from when you did it to being in the play? Is it structurally the same? Because it, it was a three-minute monologue, I gave it more of a definitive end, and now and then now it's just got a more open-ended kind of thing. But honestly, it's pretty it's pretty identical. It's pretty much the exact same thing, which is quite fun. Like it's not changed that much. And that was 2018, maybe 2017, 2018. I'm not sure. Uh, that's interesting. So so you you do that monologue, and then at what point do you go? I want to develop this monologue. How do I do? And how did you go about developing it? Yeah. So after the monologue slam, we had the national final later on that year, and for it, they were like, "Do you want to do the same monologue?" And I just was like, "No, actually, I want to write the same character, but at a different point in their lives." So I wrote a new monologue for it, and I didn't end up winning, but every I had quite a lot of people come up to me afterwards and were like, oh, we really love it. And they'd like, give me their cards. And it's like, um, you know, certain really cool theatres. I was like, oh, I'd love to work with them. And they were like, yeah, we'd love to read the full play. And I was like, yeah, I'll get that sent to you next week. And at this point, like, <laughs> I don't have a full play. I have, I have, two, I have two three minute monologues, both at like five years apart. Uh, <laughs> so, so I was like, oh gosh, I better get to work. And then I, I don't know. I, life just things start catching up to you in a way and, and I'd never ended up doing it but off the back of the monologue slam I did start getting a few because I had no agent at this point I'd left my agent I first signed with after drama school I had quite a few casting directors reach out to me to audition for different things and stuff which was really great which is one of the reasons why I did the monologue slam and um, I remember I did one monologue for um, a theatre for a show and I auditioned for I think I was in like the final two or three and um in the end their feedback was um we we thought you were great but you just weren't an authentic Londoner which to an extent uh, I I understand but then also to another extent I was like as a young kind of black male from Birmingham um if every role that I auditioned for I'm not London enough I was like there's not many roles out there for me because as a young black male most of the roles are London uh, so I was like oh what what am I gonna do this is I started to have a bit of an existential crisis but then again the way I was raised was never to rest on your laurels and to kind of be proactive and I was like what can I do and I was like well I do have a monologue that's about a young man from Birmingham and people wanted me to adapt it and then I think that day I might have just been playing like FIFA or something and I just went I just like threw my pad down and I just got my laptop out and I started oh no tell a lie actually I start. I had that feeling when I was um in the because I was working at the pub still I found out in the pub and then I went in the pub and I was like working on the cellar and then I just went on the phone notes on my phone and just started writing a bit like developing a bit more because my laptop was broken then a couple of weeks later I'm at home playing FIFA and I was like okay no what am I doing let's get this started and then I ended up writing the kind of first the, the play is split into four parts and I basically end up writing the first part of it in that that like two, three hour period basically. And yeah, then after that we end up I end up sending it off for a thing called Pint Size Plays, which gets an extract of your play performed at the Bunker Theatre, which is at London Bridge near Borough Market. And I end up being one of the five selected scripts for that. And that's when I was like, oh, maybe I actually am a a writer here and then I end up sending it off for another thing called four of a kind which was with um 
um, wildcard theatre and it was to get an, a longer extract performed at the vaults and I ended up getting selected for that. Unfortunately, COVID kind of stopped that. But from that point, I was like, okay, no, I'm going to get this play performed and put on in the next kind of 12 months. But then COVID kind of put the brakes on it a bit. Even, even though COVID kind of interrupted it, it felt the way you talk about it. By then, the idea had momentum. You know what I mean? It was gathering traction. Yeah, and becoming exactly. the full-length play, yeah. And I think the thing that I, and it's it's quite sad because I probably won't be able to do this with anything else I write in the future. The thing that was great about this is like, this is kind of a condensed four year timeline of the play going from, I just co come to it whenever I felt the need to write. And it was kind of a creative release for me, a creative outlet. It was a chance for me to express myself when I couldn't. It's that kind of that thing we talk about, the improvising, the kind of ownership and stuff, if I ever felt like I was losing that, I'd always go back and write and then I'd feel like relaxed and calm again and like really happy with what I was doing with my yeah. creatively. And, it's yeah. interesting. So I, I totally hear what you're saying. It's really, and you, you put it very clearly in a sense. So obviously at some point you, this becomes this fully formed thing. At what point do you decide to enter it for the uh, Broadwood Pride? Um, like three days before the deadline. Really? <laughs> I, um, so I realized cause it took me so long. And then during COVID, I didn't really write because I just, some people felt more creative during COVID. Some people felt less, I was on the less side and I didn't really look at it or touch it during that period. And then it got to 2021 and I was like, okay, I've had this play for like three or four years and it's been, and these first 12 pages have brought me a lot of joy, but I need to knuckle down and finish it and I still had the same process of taking my time with it but I was like I need to finish it and then how do I get this put on what are the best ways to get it put on I looked I still think it's really unclear as a kind of new writer emerging writer if you want to use the phrase emerging and stuff like that how you can actually get a play put on there's not many clear kind of pathways and the only thing I could find outside of like begging and pleading people uh, like uh, through emails that don't even know who you are was um like entering for prizes so I wrote out this whole like spreadsheet of all these different prizes and all this kind of stuff and I was like great I'm gonna apply for every single one and I don't know what happened but I basically missed every deadline for all of them and the only one that was left was because most of the deadlines are either at the end of the year or at the start like around this time of year and it felt like the only one that I hadn't missed was the Bruntwood and I was a bit like oh god I'm not I didn't think that my play would stand up well in that kind of field because you know it's not just like new playwrights it's not just like a specific kind of pool it's like any playwright in the world could apply for it <laughs> like you know what I mean so I was like a bit like uh but I was like but if I get to a point where I can get some feedback I can and I was like three days before the deadline I just had another look through the play and I just kind of was like, okay, I had some notes actually from a kind of independent free dramaturg system that was really great called Freehand Scripts. And I got to work with um, a really great director. And then, um, yeah, I got some notes from that, which is the first time I really got notes on the full play. Like one of the only people to have read the full play before the prize, like not many people have read it by this, at this point. And I was just like, we'll send it off and see how we do. And then I kind of forgot that I sent off for it. Like, had loads of things go on that between then and then I just got a phone call like I was in I was literally sat in I think this room that I'm in now 
and I got a phone call and it was just like, yeah, you've been shortlisted. And I remember like just like going, oh my god. Wow. And how, and how how many players do they shortlist? Um, they shortlist, they shortlisted five for the international prize, which is writers from America and Australia and um other places as well, which I can't remember the top of my head. And then they uh, shortlisted another nine for the um for the actual like kind of three main prizes. And then what's after the shortlist? What happens then? Um, you get invited to the ceremony um at the royal exchange and <laughs> it's just like oh okay it looks like i'm going to the royal exchange and i was actually working on a show at the time i was doing as you like it at soho place in the west end at the time uh, and i was like and i was like oh my gosh I, i'm gonna have to ask josie rock for a day off and i was like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like how am i gonna go about this and then i went up and she was just like well you've been shortlisted for the front prize it's amazing but also we had this day off anyway so because it was on a monday which is weird actually looking back on it but it, thankfully it meant I could go and yeah so I went to Manchester and it's a long day it's a really long day you kind of meet everyone in the morning have like kind of like a breakfast with them go and take pictures then you go to another place and have lunch with everybody and then you get a two-hour break or an hour and a half break and then you go to the ceremony and in the ceremony you watch an extract of all of the plays and you're just like I just want to know so that I can enjoy the rest of my <laughs> my kind of like evening and stuff but yeah it was a uh, it was a great day. Wow! And then, it, 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 I, I, it, with the prize, do you get to perform it at the Royal Exchange as well? Um, interestingly enough, with the prize, there's not actually an obligation to perform the show. It's just, uh, it's just that they will endeavour to perform it as best as they can. Um, unfortunately, it kind of we very early on after winning the prize, we had an we had a few kind of a bit of interest, but nothing kind of concrete until Payne's Plow offered a slot at Edinburgh Fringe. And, um, but then it was like, how can we make this work? And I don't think the Royal Exchange were necessarily ready for that at that point. So then um, we had to kind of look to see if there was any, but they were willing to like co-produce it. And then thankfully, like a knight in shining armor at the last moment, um, my producer, Ellie Keel, um, who just won the um, stage prize, uh, the stage awards for producer of the year? Actually, ah, brilliant! Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. she um, she came through and yeah, picked up the show and like made it happen. Thankfully, and like yeah, wow. Actually, exclusive, exclusive. We might be going on a tour this year, so who knows? Manchester could. be. Uh, I really hope so because obviously, well, for lots of work and reasons, I have not seen the play, and of course, I'm fascinated to see it. I was working when it was on before but to come to the play itself it's interesting reading about it and 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 and, and in interviews and various things and you know, it, it sounds such a wonderful mix of things in in the play which I, really appeals to me i like the play i'm currently in cowboys at the royal court i like it because it's a real mix of tone and we move from dance to song and pathos to comedy and and it, it i get a similar vibe from what you you've done nathan and but I'm also obviously, as a Brummie, I can really relate to it when you talk about how sometimes as a city, it feels slightly overlooked still. And, and obviously, I feel that. And I, I went with, to Birmingham University, took my daughter there for her interview. And, um, and she said, oh, Dad, a lot of my friends don't want to go to Birmingham. They want to go to Bristol or, or Manchester. And nothing wrong with those cities. But what is it about Birmingham? Oh, people don't think it's kind of... A great city and I said it's a brilliant city with a real vibrancy and 
Now, I could really connect to, was that something also you wanted to try and express in the play about coming from Birmingham? Yeah, yeah, def definitely. It was like a, I think, I, I, I think I've got this like kind of eternal chip on my shoulder. And I think part <laughs> of that is from being from Birmingham. And I love being from Birmingham. I've like loved like the city. I love the people. I love the richness, the diversity, the culture, like the specificities. There are certain things that only uh like like a uh, a uh, ways that a Brummie would only behave. I think there's a real nuance to the way we act and stuff yeah, like that. Totally. And I think the thing that's really good about my play is you could set it anywhere else, but I think the humor especially is such a humor that I think if I wasn't from Birmingham, I don't think it would be the same play. Um, and I'm really strong on that. But yeah, I started writing it because I was like told that there wasn't enough kind of, that I wasn't an authentic Londoner. I was like, well, I need to make a story that's Birmingham. But I didn't want to make something that was Birmingham and that was only for Birmingham. I wanted to make something that brought Birmingham to a wider kind of audience. And like a lot of the feedback that I've really kind of, enjoyed that I kind of wanted to set out for the play to do is it's like it is just a good play at reminding you that oh people from Birmingham do just like live like a regular kind of <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing there's nothing crazy about it like in terms of it is just set in Birmingham but I think a lot of that can come from and it has really specific Birmingham references but I always say this thing that if I say that there's a part of the show where they go to a rave in Digbeth and people would maybe be like, whoa, well, we can't do that. You don't, we don't know what that means. However, if we watch like a Marvel film, for example, and they say, oh, we must run away from the Tesseract. You go, oh, okay. The Tesseract must be a bad thing. Like, <laughs> so like if you can do it with a Marvel film, you can do it with any kind of reference. As long as it's specific to the way it's written, you know what it means. Like it's easy that you can kind of go, okay, then we'll maybe like, in Digbeth, it's like warehouse raves. Oh, okay, then maybe it's kind of like print works or something like that. Do you know what I mean? It's so easy as a yeah. Londoner or from anywhere in the country. And I think I just wanted to be able to kind of harness that. I, I said something, I can't remember what I said, but something about being like, I think being really specific about where you are can sometimes add a really beautiful layer of making the show more universal in a way. I, I I think you expressed that brilliantly, Nathan. I totally agree with you to be specific, specific and, and the universal coming from that. It's also, I think, that thing about an audience really sense when something is authentic. I, I really do feel that. And when we made our show, Would You Bet Against Us, uh, with Birmingham Rep, and then we toured it into Villa Park. And it was really interesting because a lot of Villa fans came to see it. And when they came up to me afterwards, they said, oh, we really enjoyed it. And then they'd say, because you're one of us. And I think they thought I was just going to be this actor, you know, playing a part, whereas in the show, it's me. I, I mean, it's me the way that you are you in your play. And I think that brings a level of authenticity that both roots it somewhere, but then also the experience becomes bigger than that. No, I, I, I totally agree. And, and it, as I... As I mentioned, Villa, of course, I, I, and we come towards the end of our chat, Nathan, I, I have to ask you a bit about Villa. Do you remember your first game? Yeah, um, I believe, oh, actually, it's hard. I, I'm not sure if it's my first game, but it's the first game I remember. I, we played Chelsea. I sat in the upper Trinity and the rise of the South scored a penalty. OK, who was manager then? Oh, it, must have, it must have been David O'Leary. 
must have been. I think it was 2003 or four. I definitely went to a game before that, but that's the first one I remember, at least. I might have been younger, actually. But it was definitely against Chelsea. I have a, a, a line in the, our show, Would You Bet Against Us, about David O'Leary, where um, <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, this is apparently a true story, that uh, when he was going bad at Villa and he was on, we'd been beaten, he was on Match of the Day and they interviewed him. And he basically started a terrible decision. He started to slag off the Villa fans on telly. And, yeah. and he said, oh, the problem with the Villa fans is they're a bit fickle. They're a bit and fickle, yeah. Fickle. And then apparently the next home game, there was a big banner that said on the whole telly, we're not fickle, we just don't like you. Just don't like you. Yeah, I, really, I do remember that. I remember seeing that in the newspapers. Yeah, very up. good. Yeah. Very, again, very good. Probably with. But um, all right. So uh, on, the, on the Villa thing, I always finish the podcast by asking seven quick fire questions you say the first thing that comes into your head because i knew you were our guest all the questions are villa related Nathan. oh i love this, this is okay great. here we go uh would you take a top four finish or would you rather we win the fa cup top four uh, douglas louise or john mcginn ah uh, mcginn Yes. Uh, w w winning an Oscar or scoring the winning goal for Villa in a cup final? <laughs> <laughs> no comment. <laughs> no comment. Very wise. Uh, Holt End or Doug Ellistan? Uh, Holt End. Yeah. Uh, home kit or away kit? This season? Yeah. Um, I think neither. Let's go away. Ah, okay. Uh, chicken tikka pie or hot dog? Um, hot dog. Aston Villa duvet or Aston Villa pyjamas? Duvet. I had that growing up. <laughs> <laughs> Nathan, it's been an absolute joy speaking Thank to you. you so I can't wait to see your play when it's on tour. It sounds really brilliant. And and uh, I think your journey's been a really fascinating one and one I can really relate to and, and loads of people will. It's been a real pleasure. I hope to see you soon, Nathan. Yeah, definitely. What a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Thank All the best. Bye-bye. Dear listeners, if you've enjoyed this idiot podcast, please spread the word 